This is our final message in the Epistle of Paul to the Galatians. Our series began on August 30th of this past year and has spanned 22 messages. In it, we have read Paul vigorously defend the gospel, denounce legalism, and teach us how to be obedient to God and live lives of righteousness without falling into the trap of legalism. We've learned what it truly means to live out our Christian liberty, that it is not a license to do morally questionable things, that our liberty is not intended to be an occasion unto the flesh, but rather enables us to love and to serve others without the hindrance of a strict moral code that might impede us otherwise. As we close our time together in this epistle today, we're going to see one final definitive contrast between a legalistic false teacher and a true teacher of the gospel. We're going to explore each man's motivation one more time. And by God's grace, not only learn for the sake of learning, but learn for the sake of discernment how to identify error. Paul's going to seek to vindicate himself, vindicate his ministry. Last week he talked about teachers, false teachers, true teachers, being sure to provide for the true teachers that are among you, even in the midst of the false teachers who had deceived them. And this week we're going to see more emphasis upon the false and the true teacher. You know, errors flow around the church of God like ocean tides, ebbing and flowing. But we have a definitive guardian which can keep us afloat in the sea of false ideas, and that guardian is truth. Where the spirit of truth rests, so rests liberty. Where there is truth, there is victory. We pick up our reading in Galatians 6, verse 11. Let's read verse 11 to verse 18, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We pick up in our text today with what is clearly Paul's transition to his final thoughts. In verse 11, he says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Paul did not always write his epistles himself. Rather, he used what is called an amanuensis, Effectively, it's a secretary to transcribe his words. He would give the words and another person would write those words. That was called an amanuensis. In Romans chapter 16, verse 22, we learn that Paul's amanuensis was a man named Tertius. 
He says, I, Tertius, wrote this epistle, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So we find the name of the amanuensis given there. We, we presume that perhaps this was the same man that would be the amanuensis for the majority of Paul's epistles um, to the ones that he did not write himself. Uh, and we just presume that because there is no other amanuensis named in, in the scriptures. We see in 1 Corinthians and in Colossians and in 2 Thessalonians, Paul state that the salutation in those epistles was written by him, perhaps leading us to understand that the remainder of the epistle was written by another hand, but that Paul validated the letters that were his, the letters that were genuine, by writing the final words of the epistle himself. In a manner of speaking, Paul signed his epistles by writing the, the salutation himself. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, that his salutation was his token in every epistle that he writes. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So Paul, in every epistle that he wrote, at least by his own hand, wrote the salutation. However we would believe that many of the epistles were written other than the salutation by someone else's hand. Paul speaking, someone else transcribing. Galatians, however, seems to be different in that it is the only epistle where we know, where we definitively know that Paul wrote the entire thing with his own hand. And this reveals the care and the love and the urgency of his words to the churches whether we realize it or not, consciously or unconsciously, we feel the difference between a person writing something with their own hand or a person having it, say, transcribed. Often, after a missionary comes, we get a letter of thanks from them. I hold nothing against a typed letter, but there's something about a handwritten letter that almost makes, the, makes it feel like they were more appreciative to me. Uh, when I, after the wedding, after my wedding... Uh, my wife and I tag-teamed the thank-you notes. I didn't, I didn't just leave that to my wife. We actually um, tag-teamed it and effectively um, cut it in half uh, with, with maybe a little bit more for me, actually, because there were a lot more people that I knew at the wedding because we did, did it in Colorado. And I, I can't tell you how much feedback uh, the people that knew me gave my mom about the fact that I actually wrote the, the letters. That was, that was Jamin's handwriting. That wasn't Sarah's handwriting. And, and it amazed me how many people were touched by the fact that the one who knew them, it wasn't just a form letter. It wasn't just a typed letter. It wasn't just the wife that doesn't even know him, you, writing the letter. It was, it was the one who you were there to see, because you didn't even know my wife. You're there to see Jamin get married, and... Jamin wrote the thank you note. That meant something to them. And that's kind of the idea here. Paul wanted these men and these women to take what he said very seriously. And he sought to demonstrate that by writing the entire epistle with his own hand. Paul then turns his concern back to these false teachers. We already mentioned that he was talking about true teachers last week. As he says, those who are taught ought to communicate to the teachers and all good things. And he, he, remember, he emphasized the fact that there are still good teachers. And don't punish the good teachers for the bad. But now he kind of focuses again on these bad teachers. And he says in verses 12 and 13, And as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... 
they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Here we, we see a breakdown of one of the primary actions and motivations of false teachers. In, chap, in verse 12, Paul says they make a fair show in the flesh. The idea of a fair show in the flesh is that they do a very good job of putting on an outward display. They do a very good job of putting on an outward display. They make sure that they appeal to your senses, your sensibilities, your emotions. They know what causes a person to respond and they practice it. They know human nature and they appeal to human nature. They know what is attractive and they appeal to what is attractive. They know how to get people excited and they make people excited. They are good salesmen. They know how to make a convincing pitch. But the church is not a business, is it? It should not operate on the principles of carnal allurements. And while it's not wrong for a church or a teacher to reduce distraction, to increase appeal by being organized, by allowing things to function smoothly, if I was up here and I was just stuttering, um, and then, um, and yet, yeah, uh, 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 um, uh, it would be hard for you to understand. It would be hard for you to, to glean. It would be distracting for you. If I came and, and my, my suit was all um, messy and, and wrinkled and, and I had stuff in my teeth and my hair, whatever's left of it, was, it doesn't really stick up. But if it was sticking out, how's that? If it was sticking out and, and I, I, you know, all of these things were out of place, it would be a distraction to you. I, I go out of my way to ensure that there's no distractions. And that's right and that's good. But that same, by that same token, when you see ministries or ministers who are going so far out of their way to appeal to the carnal, to appeal to the flesh, to appeal to that part of human nature, to purposefully cut through, uh, or excuse me, to, to uh, purposefully appeal to, to that which is carnal, it should cause you, it should cause a flag to go up. And cause you to take a closer look at their doctrine and purposefully cut through all of that flash to discern what's underneath. Is it simply there? I mean, is all that appeal simply there to appeal? To, to make it comfortable and enjoyable and to reduce distraction? Or are they compensating through their carnal appeal for lack of doctrine, for lack of spiritual substance. It's not wrong for a church to have a coffee bar or to have professional website or professional signage. It's not wrong to have good, well-done music, beautiful buildings, fun activities, and thus in these ways appeal to the sensibilities of organization and of class and of a first-class operation type deal. It's not wrong for a preacher to tell jokes or stories or use relevant illustrations. But when you see the fair show in the flesh, it should naturally cause you to question whether or not it's all show or whether there's substance underneath the show. Are these elements there to distract people and allure them away from sound teaching or is it there to facilitate sound teaching? 
Are these elements there to compensate for poor spiritual virtue or facilitate spiritual virtue? Are these ministries or ministers attempting to preach truth or sell an ideology to you? See, the truth doesn't have to be sold. The truth is self-validating. It stands on its own two feet. I don't have to get up here and convince you of anything. That's not my job. Is the minister seeking to sell you? Or is he seeking to tell you? In the case of the Judaizers in the Galatian church, Paul says that these men made a great display. They sold their ideology, uh, ideology well. They are good salesmen. They make a good pitch and they back it up with fashion glam for the cause of constraining the people of the church to be circumcised and to follow a legalistic false gospel. So that's their strategy. A fair show in the flesh. If that's their strategy, what's their motive? Verse 13. Paul tells us that their motivation, excuse me, still verse 12, their motivation for compelling the men of the church to be circumcised is so that they would not suffer persecution. Effectively, they compelled the church to avoid being hated by the Jews by giving in to the Jews' demands that true followers of God must be circumcised. This was not a godly attempt to avoid confrontation based upon the conscience of a brother. This wasn't the weaker brethren principle where we don't do something that we could do or do do something that we wouldn't do in order to, to win someone. This isn't the idea um, that we are going into someone else's culture and simply um, uh, allowing their cultural distinctives to shine through. This was a carnal attempt to avoid confrontation by giving in to the demands of a false religion by yielding the distinctives of truth in order to avoid persecution. That's what the false teachers were doing. They wanted to avoid the persecution that came with Christ, so they minimized Christ and maximized the law. The Jews came no closer to Christ because the Gentile believers were getting circumcised. Much to the contrary, as these Gentiles got circumcised, they were validating the Jews in their false religion. The Jews were saying, aha, now here's finally a group of, of Christians that are willing to do it our way. To give up their way and do it our way. They're finally admitting that we have it right. That you have to be circumcised to get to God. That you have to follow the law to get to God. It was, it was a failure element. It was, it was the Jews seeing them as having given in. As I say this, perhaps it sounds familiar. Is this not what so much of the broad church at large does today in almost every context? Today is a prime example. Today is a prime example. Example February 7th, 2016. Super Bowl Sunday, right? Churches around this country are, have canceled their services in order to watch the Super Bowl. Now up here, there's not a lot of evening services, but in other parts of the country, it's pretty prevalent. But not so much on Super Bowl Sunday. A lot of times, the, the service is canceled. Churches around the country following teachers who would make a fair show in the flesh, trying to appeal to culture, conforming to culture, telling the church that for the sake of peace and unity, they need to do like the heathens do. But in doing so, they're not bringing the culture any closer to the church. They're validating the culture. They're not opening the doors to dialogue and influence. They're validating the culture. 
Now, I'm not saying that football's wrong, Super Bowl's wrong. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, when a church yields its distinctives, you don't have a Sunday night service? Okay, you're not yielding a distinctive. But when the church does yield its distinctives, for the sake of pagan culture, the pagan culture says we've won. They don't say, oh wow, this is the church, this is an olive branch. The same can be said in many other contexts. In 2012, it was revealed that Wycliffe Bible Publishers created a Muslim-friendly Bible. In it, for example, in Jesus' great commission to go into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, they changed it to baptizing them in the name of Allah, His Messiah, and His Holy Spirit. This was in an attempt to give an olive branch to the Muslim world and to show them that they can read the Bible too. But what did that actually do? That told the Muslims, aha, they are willing to compromise the distinctive of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. We have won. The church has yielded. Same can be said in many other areas. Church music choice. How often does contemporary music actually heighten the worship? Or how often does it simply say to the world, aha, we're reaching the church. Right? So often the church says, aha, we're reaching the world. That's what we want to say. I wonder how often the world says, aha, we're finally reaching the church. We're finally reaching the church. How often do our choices in church... How often are our choices among ministers driven by the true desire to further truth and clarity? Or how many times are our churches and ministers driven to do what they do simply to avoid persecution, conflict, to avoid being told that we're bad people, we're bigots. Wouldn't want to be called a bigot, so let's give in. I wouldn't want to be called intolerant. So let's work on our tolerance. We're not winning the world by compromising in the name of tolerance. The world's winning us. And that's what Paul is saying here. You didn't win the Jews. These, these false teachers aren't winning the Jews by getting circumcised and compelling you to get circumcised. The Jews are winning you. The legalists are winning you. The purpose of this legalizing, Judaizing, false doctrine, teaching and encouragement, the reason why they made such a fair show in the flesh was not to be more effective in ministry. It was to avoid the persecution that comes through the offense of the cross. And anytime you have that as your motivation, you know that it can't be right. And notice the hypocrisy of these legalizers in verse 13. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Paul says they don't preach this because they keep the law themselves. They're not keeping the law. No man can keep the law. The Bible established that time and again, that there is no man that keeps the law. And James says if any man keeps the whole law, but offends in one point, he is guilty of all. So Paul says it's not as if these guys have found the key. 
that for, for a thousand years the Jews couldn't figure it out, so Jesus Christ comes, and then all of a sudden these guys have now figured out the key to keeping the law and to pleasing God through the law. But they want you circumcised, and they want you to feel guilty, and they want you to feel like you have to keep the law so that they can feel good about you submitting to them. They want to glory in you. You are their prey. And when you bind yourself to the law, even the law that they're not keeping, they feel good because they're in control. They glory in you. They can feel godly because they have a following. They, can impose, they impose worth on their lives by the number of people that their fair show in the flesh convinces to follow their, their thing, their ideology, their error. And the more people follow them, the more confident they get in their error, and the stronger they preach it. One of the most common characteristics of legalized religions is that they don't practice what they preach. I remember a couple of years ago um, being in Colorado for my sister's wedding. And I was there with missionary Giltner. Uh, he, he was a friend from college, and so he was at her wedding as well. And we went out one day to a park, and we were sharing the gospel. We actually sat in lawn chairs and had bottles of water on a hot day. And as people would come by and we'd hand out water, we'd see if we could engage them on the gospel. It actually worked pretty well. Um, and one of the young ladies we talked to on that day grew up in a Catholic home. And... Catholicism is not a real big thing out west. But she grew up in a Catholic home and she said, I rejected it because there's all of these rules. There's all of this stuff that we learned that my parents would shove down my throat, but they didn't do a bit of it. They didn't do any of it. And it was so hypocritical. And this is very common in legalized religions, in works-based systems. Because we can't live up to, to a workspace system. No man can. And so when people see us living in a workspace system, they're going to see hypocrisy. Because there's no way we can live up to it. The teachers of workspace systems hold up a standard of conduct as the basis for a relationship with God but there's no way they maintain that standard themselves. They get up and they tell you everything that you need to be and do and whatever. And, and if you don't do this, then you're wrong. And, 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 and then they go back to living just like everyone that they're preaching to. But they don't glory in their obedience to their standard. They glory in your obedience to their standard. They impose your obedience as their righteousness. Their pride is rooted in seeing you do what they tell you to do. That's a false teacher. But notice the glory of the true follower as we continue in verse 14. Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Whether teacher or layman, whether male or female, whether Jew or Gentile, Paul says that the glory of each of us is not in ourselves, it's not in a system, it's not in conduct. The glory that each of us should have should be in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When men 
reject us for our liberty in Christ. We aren't concerned with what they think because our glory is not in our reputation. Our glory is in the cross of Christ. When men reject us for our obedience to Christ, we aren't concerned with what they think because our glory is not in our own reputation but in the cross of Christ. When you're judged by those who know you for being that crazy fundamentalist, that's okay. Because it's not about what they think. We don't glory in our reputation. We glory in Christ. And if you're walking in good conscience before Christ, then you're doing what you need to do. When legalizing legalistic religions look at us and scorn us for the liberty that we have in Christ, that's okay. Because it's not about them. We don't do what we do to glory in how people look at us or think of us. We do it for Christ. When you talk to an unbeliever and the unbeliever mocks you, scorns you, hates you, is cruel to you, persecutes you, it's not about them. It's not about whether or not they agree with what you do. It's about whether or not Christ agrees with what you do. Our glory is in Christ. As we've said many times, whether we fall into legalism or license, both are driven by the flesh. The legalistic moralizer is acting as much in the flesh as the licentious man or woman. But to the follower of Christ, to one who glories in the cross... The world has been crucified to you. And you have been crucified unto the world. The world is dead to you. And you are dead to the world. You no longer love what the world loves. You no longer care what the world thinks. You're not interested in upholding a reputation. You're interested in upholding the truth. You want what God wants. Your loyalties rest in Him, not yourself. Not in your teachers, not in those that follow you, not in your church, in Christ and the cross. Paul proclaimed back in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not just crucified with Christ, however, but risen with him as well. I am crucified, he said, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Paul would say to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. If we want to maintain this mindset, compelled by our understanding of what God wants and what He doesn't want, then we will find victory. If we can maintain this mindset. Victory over the dangers of legalism. Victory over the dangers of license. You're dead to the world. So the world should be dead to you. You have died and are risen with Christ. So the priorities of the world, the loves of the world, the cares of the world should hold no sway. That doesn't mean that the world is not alluring. It is. 
That doesn't mean the world is not fun in a, in, uh, as far as the flesh is concerned. It is. But God has given us so much in Christ in this world that we can enjoy. There's so much virtuous enjoyment to be found in this life. We don't need what the world has to offer from a carnal, fleshly, wicked perspective. You don't need that to be happy, to enjoy, to, to be entertained. And truth is transcendent. If we believe something to be true, if we really believe it to be true, then nothing's going to make us deny it. Persecution doesn't change the truth. So why should it change our message? Or our actions? Culture doesn't change the truth. That's what culture would like you to say, right? That we need to adapt this book to the times. We need to understand now that, things, that we see things differently. We need to adapt this book to it. We don't see things differently. We don't see things differently. Culture doesn't see things differently. It's a liberated culture now. Sodomy and transgenderism. We need to adapt this book. You know, there were entire Sodom, Sodomite cities in the Old Testament. You don't, you don't think they had people standing up and saying, Hey, look, I was born this way? Yes, they did. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. The way culture is today, it's not new. It's not new. It's just recycled. It's the same thing again. And you know what that means? That means truth doesn't change. That means we don't have to adapt it. God didn't adapt it in the Old Testament. God didn't adapt it in the New Testament. And we don't need to adapt it today. We need to learn it. We need to believe it. We need to trust it. It's a windy night. Culture doesn't change truth. So why should it change our message or our actions? Time doesn't change truth. So why should it change our message or our actions? Paul then says in verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you are a new creature. You are, as Galatians would tell us earlier, an adopted citizen of a heavenly kingdom. You have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. It has nothing to do with your body, nothing to do with whether you were circumcised or not circumcised, nothing to do with whether or not you're marked or tattooed or pierced or maimed or injured or uh, any other bodily consequence. The vessel is only the vessel. What matters is that you are a new creation, a spiritual creation in Christ. You have a new heart with God's law written upon it. And you have been made a new creature in order to live in a new and living way. Your standing with God is in Christ. Not in some outward ritual of the flesh. Not in circumcision. Not in baptism. Not in an outward show of ritualistic or legalistic zeal. And yet, as Paul has said time and again, you have been adopted into the family of God for the purpose of representing the family and to live according to the family's values before the world. You're a part of a family. 
your family has values. And as a child of a family, you are expected to live according to those values. Now, maybe for some in this room, the adults in this room, your family's values weren't all that exceptional. But particularly for the children in this room, your family has a particular set of values. And those values are, to one degree or another, exceptional. You, you have a standard by which you are expected to live because you are a part of a family. We're a part of a family. So yes, it doesn't matter. The outward shows of the flesh don't matter but at, uh, as far as our, our direct relationship with Jesus Christ. But by that same token, we ought to live like a Christian. So Paul says in verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Paul says, as many as conform to this reality, the understanding of a true gospel, the understanding of what the gospel is and what it is not, the standard of the gospel free from external expectation or compulsion, as many as hold fast to the true gospel, not abusing their liberty, not excusing their sin, but not legalizing their actions, to these, Paul says, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. An interesting phrase there, the Israel of God. There's little doubt in this context, as Paul says, the Israel of God, that he is speaking to the church. We've spent time in our Galatians series, as well as in 1 Peter, as we've been doing it on Tuesday evenings, and we'll continue um, as we hold the biblical perspective, that Paul speaks about Israel after the flesh in his epistles. Peter does as well. National Israel. Not an Israel of God, which are those who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith, but national Israel. Paul does speak about them in his epistles. He distinguishes between national Israel and spiritual Israel. But he still does have this group that he calls spiritual Israel that we know as the church. We need not recognize one to the exclusion of the other, but at the same time we cannot overlook the reality that Paul on several occasions speaks of the church in the terms of Israel, of being the true Israel. By this we know Paul is expressing the fact that those who have followed the faith of Abraham are far more aligned with Abraham than those who follow the bloodline of Abraham. Furthermore, Paul states clearly that the spiritual legacy of Abraham is not carried by the physical descendants of Abraham, but by the church, by the spiritual descendants of Abraham, by those who are rightfully aligned with God as Abraham was through faith. And at this point, I trust everyone is fairly comfortable with this, that the way Paul describes it here, the Israel of God, the Israel that pertains unto God, it's quite clear he's speaking of the church. Whereas there are times, as we think of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as we think about the, the descriptions of election, where it's very clear that, that there's still a national Israel in scope. 
We recognize the church to be a continuation of the legacy of Abraham, to be a continuation of the election that Israel once had, that we understand the Jews, however, have been set aside for this age, that God is not working through them today, that they are not currently being blessed by God as they had been before, but that these realities do not overlook the fact that God still has a plan for Israel and that there's coming a day when national Israel will be brought back into God's plan. So Paul declares peace and mercy upon all those who walk according to the gospel and peace and mercy upon the um, Israel of God, that being the church. Now Paul's urgency and clarity in these points, as we mentioned early on in this study, was also tied to the fact that these false teachers were directly opposing the validity of the gospel which Paul preached. Paul was not just calling them back to the truth here, but he was also vindicating his apostolic authority. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had authority. And there are several times, we see it in 1 Corinthians, we see it here in Galatians, where Paul had to fight for his authority. He had to assert his authority as an apostle. He mentioned already that one of the motivations for these false teachers' claims was that they would not suffer persecution. That if they lessened the offense of the gospel, the offense of Jesus Christ then they um, speak it without the fear of reprisal, even in the culture that opposed Christ. So they could go and they could, they could preach uh, the, their legalistic gospel because the Jews had no problem with it. Get rid of the, the fact that you don't have to be circumcised. Basically, effectively, as long as you join, join the Jewish religion, then you're fine. Uh, that reduced the persecution. But notice what Paul said in contrast. He said, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Christ, uh, the, Lord Jesus. the Greek word translated marks here is the word that means a marking by incision, a cut, or by a stamp. It's actually the word stigma in the Greek, if you look at it there. Stigma meaning a mark of ownership. We use that word today, right? If something has a stigma, that certain group has a stigma, we use it kind of to mean a reputation. They bear certain marks. That's the word here. Greek word stigma. And a marking by incision or stamp. Paul says, I can take my shirt off and show you the lashings that I have endured for the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I can show you all along my face and body the scars from the stones that struck me because I would not deny the offense of the cross. Paul says, let no man trouble me. Let no man accuse me of not being a preacher of the gospel. Let no man accuse me of not having apostolic authority. Let no more men in the church of Galatia call me a fraud. Let no more men in the church of Galatia convince you that I am only in it for my glory. If I'm only in it for my glory, then what are these scars on my face? If I'm only in it for my glory, then what are these lashings along my back? Paul didn't want to be beaten or or scorned. But the gospel is offensive, and so Paul was beaten and scorned for his loyalty to the gospel. And he says, let this end these false accusations of these teachers, because I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Paul then closes the epistle, as he has done in many. Verse 18, he says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
Amen. Regularly, Paul wishes upon his readers grace and peace. He's already wished mercy and peace upon the obedient. And he now wishes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them. And he closes the epistle. Church of Christ. As we close our time, I would like to focus upon these words. Peace, mercy, and grace. The epistles contain a great deal of correction. Throughout the epistles, we've spent much time talking about what is wrong and why it is wrong. False gospels, legalism, the dangers. And yet, in the case of the epistle of Galatians, more than even others, Paul is not driving us to be driven by guilt or debt. As, we, as I stand up here week in and week out and I tell you what is right and what is wrong, the nature of truth is that truth exposes error. And so there's the natural reality that, that there's going to be conviction, that we're going to feel like there's a lot of things where I, I, I hear and I, even as I preach say, well, yep, I, I need to work on that one. Yeah, I'm not doing that so well. But remember that Paul is emphasizing here that it's not about debt. You don't live under a system of debt. It's not about guilt. You don't live under a system of guilt. You ought not be motivated by guilt to serve the Lord. There's a difference between guilt and conviction. Conviction is when truth shines into your heart and you know that you aren't doing something that you ought to do and you, that, that's, that's of the Lord. Or you know you've done something that you shouldn't do. That's of the Lord. That's conviction. Guilt is when you feel like you're not measuring up because of what you're doing or not doing. Conviction says, I'm not doing it. I ought to be doing it because God loves me and he's done this for me. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Because of what I am in Christ, who I am in Christ. If I may put it this way, you're above sin. You are above sin. Sin is, you are, sin is not worthy of you in Christ. Not because of you, but because you are in Christ. You are above sin. You are a prince. You are royalty, princess. You are royalty. And when we sin, we take off our royal robes, we put on pauper's garments, and we go sit on the street and beg for apple cores. That's what sin is. To we who are inheritors of the kingdom of God. The system in which we operate is not a system that says, if you don't do this, you won't measure up. If you don't look like pastor and his family, you don't measure up. If you don't have their standards, you don't measure up. If, if, if you're not doing this, you're not measuring up. That's not the system in which we operate. The system in which we operate says, hey, look, you're a child of the living God. You've been redeemed. You've been pulled out of that. Christ loves you. Love him back. Serve him back. Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace be upon you. Not debt, not obligation, not guilt. It's not debt, obligation, and guilt be upon you, amen. It's grace, mercy, 
and peace be upon you. Amen. We're driven by a love for Christ. We are not driven by threat, but by a promise that as we do it God's way, the unchanging results of this obedience will be the overthrowing, excuse me, overwhelming and all-consuming peace which God affords to those who have been showed great mercy and great grace. You can pillow your head every night. Believer, you can pillow your head every night under no condemnation, under no guilt, under no debt, under no frustration of your failures. You can, before you go to bed every night, have confessed and forsaken your sin and known that you don't have to work yourself back into favor with some deity, that you don't have to do enough crawling or wrist cutting or praying or good works or community service to get yourself back into favor with God. Because your favor isn't about you, it's about Christ. And as you align yourself with Christ, you have aligned yourself with God. You can pillow your head every night in hope and in peace. The peace of knowing that every sin is under the blood. That the life that you have been called to live is a life lived under the all-consuming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. And this is what Galatians fights so hard for you to be able to do. For you to have the kind of mindset that says, no, I'm not going to shackle myself to a false standard. No, I'm not going to shackle myself to the impositions of debt. No, I'm not going to shackle myself to, the, to, to, to guilt, to guilty living. I am a child of God, so I want to do right, and I'm going to do right. But I'm under the blood of Christ. And let us make sure that no one ever takes that away from us. Because that is the distinctive of a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for, for its depths and riches. Pray for every man, woman, child in this room. If any of them are struggling under a false debt, a false guilt, that you would redeem them from that guilt as they understand who they are in Christ. Father, may this never be a occasion to sin, our freedom, our liberty, grace. But may it always be the context within which we obey. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.